How are you doing, Lily? Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. What's up? How are you doing? I'm good. It is a sunny day here in Seattle. And so like it's summer. In the summer, it's really good here. And so I feel like when it's nice out, I feel like I need to go outside every day. Yeah, well, sorry to like make you be staying indoors for this uh, recording, no. recording session, but um, and I'm glad we figured out all the uh, technical details. So I'm, I'm really, I'm really <laughs> looking forward to hearing the um, high quality microphone uh, in the post production. And yeah, anyway, uh, I'm super excited. So yeah, it, it is my pleasure to introduce um, Lily George, who is one of my oldest friends. Um, I, there aren't too many people that I've stayed in touch with as regularly since high school um, as as you, Lily. I mean, it's been what when when did we start high school again 20 2010 2010 2010 was when we started high school okay um and it's now 2022 so it's been at least 12 years and I would say like you know even though there are definitely stretches during that time where we, we didn't see each other in person like I feel like we always were staying in contact at least somewhat through you know the occasional text and and FaceTime or call or whatever uh which I am not great at staying in touch with people so that's that's saying a lot uh, and then you were also the only person who uh, visited me while I lived in Florida for two years. I, it's very out of the way. Jacksonville is not really on the way to anywhere. But I did really appreciate you taking a side trip from what was it, some conference in like Orlando yeah. or something to to come yeah. up to Jacksonville and, and say hi. So um, it's it's really a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm looking forward to having a conversation about various different topics. And yeah, it's just it's just great to see you. Yeah, no, it's great to see you too. Yeah, no, like. Uh... I don't know. I feel like uh, I was whenever I talk about you to my friends, I'm always like, Thomas is like such a cool, smart guy. And like, uh, yeah, no, I've like I feel like the fact that you have this podcast is like very cool and interesting. So it's fun to be able to participate. Well, it's all thanks to the to the guests. But yeah, um, <laughs> it's it's great to have you, um, you know, to add on to the, the list of, of guests that I've had. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like there are, there are various things that, um, you know, when you when you like know someone since high school, when it's like practically half your life ago, I mean, what, yeah. 14, I'm like almost 26 now. Gosh, time yeah. flies. Um, you know, th- there were like all kinds of things from going through just the difficulties of high school life and drama. And like at one point you studied abroad in Japan in Tokyo. That was when my family was still living there. I remember we like met up once at like some random mall in, in Tokyo. That was kind of funny. Um, yeah. I remember like that time, like uh, we were talking about meeting up a second time, but like it was like we had like a miscommunication. So I wasn't sure if we were actually meeting up or not, but like you thought we were meeting up. And so you showed up. We were going to meet at Hachiko, right? Oh, yes. And, yes. At yeah, the Hachiko felt... statue in Shibuya. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and then you were there and I didn't come. Like 12 years. <laughs> oh, <laughs> whenever I think about it, I'm like, oh, God, I made Thomas yeah. wait. No, I feel bad. I feel bad because it's like you were doing this study abroad in Tokyo. My family literally lived there and we only met up like once. And I totally should have just like had you over for dinner with my family and like shown you around more. So I, I feel bad about that. But anyway, no, this is over a decade fine. ago. So I, I hope <laughs> it is. we can We've... put it behind us. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool, cool. And then, yeah, you did. You went on to do lots of interesting things. So you spent like one of our years in high school. You weren't even there because you were doing school year mm-hmm. abroad um, in China. So, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously I've heard a bit about uh, it was, you know, some of your experiences there, but um I mean, that, that's just something not super typical, like not, not maybe mm-hmm. people might do like a one term abroad or something, but not too many people did like an entire year uh, abroad in high school. So that, that was like pretty, I mean, I, I think you always sort of like were into forging your own path and like doing things like you're just sort of your own way, which was, which was very cool. 
Um, and then, yeah, um, now you like work in software, which is yeah quite different from my understanding of what your interests were like in high school. In high school, I always thought of you as like a very like literary, like writing oriented person because we were both like into, I think, writing to some degree. Um, and then somehow we both ended up in like computer science. So it's, it's kind of funny. Yeah, that's true. I never thought about that, but you're right. Yeah, like, um, I don't know, like people sometimes ask me about that. Like, you know, hey, like, you know, I ran into one of our high school friends. Uh, I won't name who it was, but I ran into him. I work at Microsoft now and I was an intern and we were at intern orientation and I saw someone from high school and I was, he, we noticed each other and he comes up to me. He's like, Lily, what are you doing here? I'm like, we're at intern orientation. What do you think I I'm work doing here? here. Oh, that was, but yeah, that's no, I think, okay. <laughs> no, no, I thought it was funny. I thought it was funny because you're right. Like, um, there's a, like, I definitely was like kind of like an English, like almost like poetry kind of person back in high school. But I do think that the interest in both computer science and creative writing is like, it stems from the same fundamental impulse, right? Like that kind of like wanting to make something that other people use or view or consume, right? Um, and so to me, they're actually quite similar, but I understand how like, you know, it might seem different to other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, cool. And it's actually like, I'm glad we sort of have this level of understanding of like sort of different, these different experiences. Like we, we kind of know what it's like to pursue like writing as an art form and like have exposure to that sort of like more artsy side of things. But we also sort of are both familiar with the tech world and some of the, because I think one of the, the ideas we talked about when discussing this podcast is that we want to discuss this notion of um, status anxiety. So that will probably end up being part of the, the title of the podcast. But last year during COVID, you suggested doing a book club, which was a great idea because I lived in England where there was this very strict lockdown. And so there were like pretty much no social opportunities for me whatsoever. Um, and just, I mean, in general, it was COVID, so there, there wasn't too much to do. And I actually used that time, I feel like, to reconnect with old friends and, like, do kind of fun, like, catch, catch like, I mean, I started a podcast, for example. Uh, but I really appreciated your idea of, of starting this book club where we would just, like, kind of have a Zoom call every, what, week or two weeks or something. And we would mm. we read um, the book Status Anxiety by Alain de Baton, um, who does, like, the um, School of Life YouTube channel and um, sort of, well, I don't know what you would call it, like, a, it's like a it's like a educational slash lifestyle coaching slash um philosophy course sort of entire worldview type i don't know it's, it's very hard to describe exactly what school of life is but it's 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 yeah. um i enjoyed the book i thought it was i thought it was a great read i, I especially enjoyed reading it with you know a friend um, and being able to discuss some of how it pertains to to our life experiences so uh, would you mind just sharing like kind of I mean, you suggested the book. So what was it originally that stuck out to you about status anxiety and, and why did you suggest it for the book club? Yeah, I mean, I had had a friend tell me about the book. And uh, the nice thing about status anxiety is if you like, you know, look at the preview on like Amazon, the first like two pages of the book are like just a list of definitions. Um, and when you read that list of definitions, it's just like very hard hitting. Like it gets to the meat of the subject like really quickly. Um, and so I thought that, you know, I feel like, especially like coming from like the kind of school that we went to, I think the idea of status is kind of this like insidious thing that can, that subconsciously maybe drives a lot of our behavior. I know it does for me at least. Um, and, uh, yeah, I thought that reading the book would be like, it just sounded interesting. And I was like, Hmm, who should I discuss this with? And 
we were talking. I think we were talking about something unrelated. I was like, "Hey, Thomas, want to do a book club?" Um, and and so it began. So it began. Yeah, no, it was it was great. And of course, uh, shout out to your friend Kay, who also joined in yes. our discussions. And um, yeah, and it was it was a great like I don't know whole vibe of of getting together and being able to just discuss things that's I think important, but also just different from the work I was doing. And it, I always look forward to that, you know, every week. So so that was great. Um, okay, so let's like try to I guess maybe dive into some of the key ideas. Um, I had to just refresh my memory earlier today on the book because it had been like a year since since I read it. Um, but I think like one of the important ideas is, you know, A, that this phenomenon of status anxiety is something relatively recent in world history that's sort of like particularly exacerbated in sort of industrialized, wealthy um, Western countries among sort of very highly educated and ambitious type people, but it draws on sort of certain features of human nature that have always been with us, right? So, I mean, it's, it's not like a problem that is created out of nothing. It's a problem that's built on certain factors that are innate to, to human nature, but these factors are, are somewhat ex- are exacerbated by the circumstances that we find ourselves in today um, and the types of incentives that exist in society, the types of pressures we put on ourselves and on others, um, which I thought was, yeah, very interesting. And just how, you know, it's, it's particularly pronounced in the types of circles, you know, like college educated people, people who are working in, I mean, so many of our friends from high school and college are part of this world, I guess, right? Where it's like sort of climbing the career ladder you know, whether it's academia or working in like a big company or trying to like um, make a name for yourself in Silicon Valley or, or whatever it is, right? It's sort of like, we know so many people in that world. Um, and what is it about sort of where we are in today's world that creates this phenomenon of status anxiety? What do you think? Yeah. What is it about? Well, I think the book kind of gives like some good insight into how this kind of developed. So to kind of give a little bit of background of, you know, you talked about how this has been with us for a long time, like, you know, ages and ages as part of human history. But in the contemporary era, it kind of takes on a different flavor and almost like it feels stronger in the contemporary era for some reason. And the reason that the I feel like every time you say the author's name, it sounds like wait, like I'm like Thomas is getting it right. And I'm not really because I feel like I'm kind of bullshitting, but it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I guess it's de Botton. Um, the way he, <laughs> um, the what the way he describes the past, right? In like you know, like medieval society, for example, is we had kind of a peasant class, and then there were like the nobility, right? Um, and because there was less social mobility between the classes, um. There was less there. You didn't feel pressure like you didn't like if you were born a peasant and you just stayed a peasant your whole life like that was like not an issue. Not only that, but the different classes felt like an obligation towards one another. Like um, the nobility felt like sure, maybe they felt like they were like better than the peasants, for example. But they did feel a sense of like obligation towards people who were less fortunate to them. Um, And, you know, obviously, like I, I keep using the word peasant. I feel like it's a terrible word. Um, but, uh, I guess like the people who weren't nobility, they, uh, obviously felt like, you know, they had to like, you know, take care of the grounds or something like that. Um, but because there wasn't this ability to change your class, 
um, there was much more contentment in your role in society. Everyone kind of knew where they stood and that you didn't have what we call status anxiety. I feel like the term status anxiety, it refers to this idea that like we could be doing more, right? Like we're stressed about our status because it's constantly in flux. In the same way that we can ascend like the social ladder, right? We can also like fall down it just as easily. And so you constantly have to like fight to maintain your position, which like, like what does the position even mean, right? Um, and so I think that in comparison to modern society where like, it's great, you know, totally social mobility like super great like love having it right but um it does come with this side effect where it gives people kind of this dread as they live through their life as if they feel like they're doing something wrong if they aren't you know a typical problem that we talk about right is like uh you're like in your like teens or even your 20s right and you see like Forbes 30 under 30 and you look at them and you're like oh like why am I not on this list or like what are they doing right that I'm not doing like um, it's a little bit stressful, um, just constantly seeing this thing. Um, and you're always like, oh, and we're the same age and they've done so much more. Um, that's kind of a modern issue. Yeah. 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 So I think it's very much tied up with this idea of meritocracy, right? Which again, mm. I, I, I think both of us, I think acknowledge that we're not trying to say that somehow we should go back to like medieval times and we should go back to like yeah. surf like that's definitely not what we're saying right but we're saying that like we shouldn't just uncritically accept all social progress as being like a sort of unalloyed good that doesn't contain any bad sides like no we have to like look critically at, at what's happened and yes look at all the advancements we've had in technology look at all the you know egalitarianism we have in terms of the rights that people have and just sort of acknowledging that anyone can sort of do any job and you don't have to do the same work that you're you know, father and grandfather did and that, you know, I mean, there's so many problems with the, the social structures of the past. So without sort of trying to dismiss any of those, we can still look at what we have today and try to analyze, okay, what, where has it gone wrong? Where has it, what are some of the unintended consequences of the system that we have, right? And I, I keep coming back to this idea of meritocracy. And I wish I could remember the, the name of the book because I, I remember having like a separate Zoom call about about uh, a book that, that dealt with meritocracy, right? And that, that's sort of one of the core tenets, I think, of, of um, status anxiety is that we have a, a world in which sort of you, you, at least nominally, we have this belief that if you work hard, then, you know, you can achieve anything. Um, and so what that does is that if you sort of take the flip side of that, it, it implies that if you end up, you know, unsuccessful, you, you deserve it. Right. Um, mm. And, you know, of course, there, there's so many reasons why we should challenge that that analysis or that reading of, of the situation. Um, but it's, I think, psychologically very real, right? Like you have so many opportunities, mm -hmm. far more opportunities than any of your ancestors ever could have dreamed of. Um, but as a result, you're always comparing. And there's sort of this, you know, this famous saying about um, comparison being the thief of joy, right? Because as soon yeah. as you experience anything positive, you're immediately comparing it to um, you know, what you could have had asking what if, and I've seen this applied to like many different areas of, of modern life, which I think largely, um, kind of suffer from some of the, the similar issues, right? So this could be like with career, as you mentioned, you know, not making the Th Forbes 30 under 30 list, right? Which seems like, okay, that, that this is such like a first world problem to, to have that. But it's like, when you actually know people on the list, you know, you can start to feel bad about, you know, whatever accomplishments you, you may have. Um, I've heard this applied to like the dating scene, right? Like in medieval times, mm -hmm. to like go back to that analogy, you know, you would probably, your, your entire world of people was like maybe in the hundreds or like low thousands. 
Um, and the number of people in your like dating pool would be like relatively small and you would, you'd, you'd only, there was no like mass media. You didn't have like, you know, pictures of celebrities like on magazines and movies all the time. So that you would just kind of like probably find someone that you kind of connected with and, and just like whatever, not really question too much like what your other options are because you just wouldn't even think of like this, you know, the, the way the way people approach it in the modern world is like, you have so much more information. You like people live in big cities. There are these things like dating apps where you can like kind of swipe through hundreds of different profiles. And so I've heard it apply to like, it's not, it's not status anxiety per se, but it's like a similar concept, I think, of like dissatisfaction yeah. with what you have because you're always comparing um, to something else, some other hypothetical. Um, and then, yeah, I think like, you know, when it, when it comes to like this, this process of, of getting older, right? Like, um, I think a lot of kids in our generation, especially in our circles, are were kind of raised on this idea of, you know, you're going to be, you know, a future leader, you're going to be like so successful, mm-hmm. and you can do anything. Um, and of course, as you get older, you know, like time doesn't mm-hmm. slow down, like you, you end up in a certain place at a certain time, you, it's no longer the case that you can do anything, because you have to inevitably, um, you know, narrow down and, and pick a niche. Um, and you're going to always wonder about that sort of garden of, of forking paths where, you know, if you had made one decision slightly differently years ago, where might you be today? Um, whereas yeah. it still feels so malleable when, you, when you're young. Um, and I mean, part of that is just coming to grips with, with aging and, and being told you can do anything. Whereas like in yeah. the, comparing again to the medieval peasant, right? Like they were no one was ever telling them you can do anything. They were always being told you're just going to be a farmer for the rest of your life. And so like yeah. from, from childhood, you know what your life is going to look like. And that brings a certain, amount of peace in the sense that you know you end up living in a way that you've always expected to live whereas I feel like for us I could not have told you what my life would have looked like 10 years ago like when I was in high school I certainly didn't predict that I would end up here uh I mean yeah. I didn't know that I don't I don't mean I'm I consider myself relatively um happy with where I am in life but you know I, I certainly it, it wasn't like I knew what my life was going to look like 10 years ahead so I think that, yeah that, that potentially is also a part of it Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think that it also kind of like there's that famous quote. I think it's a line from perhaps the bell jar by Sylvia Plath, I guess, where she talks about climbing a tree and there's like figs all over the tree on different branches. But if she goes and grabs one fig, she can't grab the others. And each like branch of the tree represents like a different life path she could have taken. And that's definitely real. Like that's a source of anxiety, too. Um, Or like. And the doors close, like, you know, most of the doors stay open pretty late. Like, you know, there's all those, like, anecdotes about, like, for example, the guy who, like, invented KFC. He, like, did it in his, like, 60s or something like that. But, like, for example, if we wanted to be neurosurgeons, like, we're kind of late on that, you know? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah. like, that door's shut for us, right? Um, so it's good that, you know, I get the impression neither of us wanted to do that. Um, but, you know, you see all these people choose these, like, different creative paths towards, quote-unquote, success, Right. Um, or like worldly recognition and uh, you wonder like oh man if I had just done mock trial you know back in ninth grade like where would how could things be different today right yeah 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 no definitely I mean I think like one of the the interesting things to consider is like you know I think you become more realistic about the world as you get Mm -hmm. older right and like objectively speaking today I am much more knowledgeable than I was when I was 14. Okay. I, I know a lot mm. more things. I have a lot more concrete skills. I, I, I definitely am like, have made progress since I was 14. Okay. At the same time, what, what that does is that like, because I've made progress, 
I now know more about what I don't know, right? Yeah. I, I have greater exposure to people who are very successful in their field and know what they're talking about and have done really, really incredible things. Whereas when I was 14, um, I was comparing myself to a group of 14-year-olds uh, who, you know, are children. So, like, I mean, compared to them, I was I felt really good about myself. Whereas, like, mm-hmm. as soon as you kind of reach adulthood, there's no, like, you're not comparing yourself to people necessarily in your exact age cohort. You're just kind of, like, vaguely comparing yourself to, like, other, you know, young adults or whatever. And that's a yeah. huge pool. And especially if you, you know, have, like, tried hard and, like, tried to be really ambitious like you're gonna have crossed paths with some like really really insanely successful people um and and then yeah again just like knowing that you don't know a lot um so i think like this comes into play with what's it called like the dunning kruger effect where like people who don't know a lot think that they know a lot and then people who do know a lot think they don't so it's like kind of it's, it's, it's trying to explain why like a lot of people who are not really super competent in their field end up having a lot of confidence and then sort of like the people who are or should be experts end up like suffering from this like crippling anxiety and like lack of confidence um so i think you know sometimes you need to take a step back and say okay the reason i feel like a lack of confidence is because i know enough to know that i have so much more to learn uh whereas i didn't know that before so i don't know that that has been a little bit helpful to me yeah no i think that realism i think what's interesting is i feel like there's kind of a gap like you mentioned, like when we were 14, we compared ourselves to other 14 year olds. And that's definitely true. But at the same time, like, you know, they would bring these speakers into school. Right. And then like they would, you know, give us the spiel about like being future leaders or whatever. Um, but like there would be these like cool speakers who had done interesting things in their life. And uh, I remember I used to think like, you know, OK, like we're here. We haven't done anything. And then eventually some of us will get to this point where we're like, you know, making impacts on our field. You know, we get like Wikipedia pages and stuff. Like what, how, how do you like draw the line from like one place to another? I would like go on these Wikipedia pages for like people who came to our like school and gave talks. And I would look at like the education or like early life section. I'll be like, they would just list like, oh, so-and-so went to this school and then they went to this college and then they became this person, you know, like they, it really just wasn't like what like how did they spend their weekends you know like what's different yeah. right um and i feel like you know right now if i feel maybe a sense of anxiety because like i feel like we're at that age where like those paths start to diverge and you know it's not a bad thing like i think we're also in an era where sometimes people seek out things like um financial independence retire early right and so that becomes an equally valid path and at least for me like i feel torn between the paths right um like where you could choose between, you know, do I want to just like make enough money to relax the rest of my life or not, maybe not relax, like volunteer, like write, right? Um, but at the same time, it's like, uh, but what if, am, am I, I feel like I'm supposed to like, you know, continue working and like climb the corporate ladder, or like switch companies, right? Um, it's uh, like, you're not sure, like what steps are we supposed to take? And we feel the anxiety that we feel or like we should be taking some steps, right. To like, mm-hmm. quote unquote advance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's like kind of yeah, two things that I definitely want to um, address from, from what you just said. Uh, and I think one of them is this idea of people's expectations. So to what degree do we suffer from the expectations put on us either explicitly or implicitly by those around us? Right. So I know some people who, 
you know, they have very explicit pressure put on them by family members, by parents, you know, they'll mm-hmm. have parents who said like, we made a lot of sacrifices for you to like put you through college. And like, now we expect you to be successful. So they feel this like very direct and explicit pressure from loved ones to be successful. And it's, it's very anxiety inducing, understandably, when they feel like they're not being as successful as they should be. If they don't get into the top med school and, you know, that they wanted to get into, or, you know, they don't become, you know, uh, like, I don't know, they, they, they want to have something to show for, for that, that sacrifice that their loved ones made for them. So that, I mean, that's very understandable to me. Um, yeah. And I think part of that, that partly explains why people in, you know, often choose to go down these like high status, but like very kind of difficult or like, you know, um, trying careers so like you know people go into finance and be working like 100 hours a week or go into med school where there's like extremely high rates of like anxiety and depression um but these are sort of like in society we acknowledge that you know if you're a a banker or if you're a doctor like that's high status um and so people may be miserable doing it but it's sort of Mm -hmm. this like unquestionably high status thing that like you know you can tell your parents like look i'm doing this or look i'm a consultant at mckinsey and you know um that, that that name has some cachet so I think part of it has to do with these expectations. And and I also want to stress that it doesn't have to be an explicit pressure from, you know, a parent or something. It can be like what you imagine people are thinking about you. I mean, I remember even in high school, I was quite young. I remember having like almost like crippling anxiety from the fact of like what I imagined people thinking about me, not what anyone actually said, like not, nothing that anyone actually ever said to me, but just like kind of what mm. I imagined people might be thinking about me, uh, which is kind of crazy to think about that. Like I would care so much about what people thought about me including people I didn't even really know super well um and I I mean I didn't have parents who put a ton of pressure on me to like be a doctor or be a lawyer or anything like that I mean they kind of just said you know pursue what you want to pursue they were pretty laissez-faire when when it came to that so for me it wasn't like the explicit kind of pressure it was more just this like implicit like kind of vague sense of you know people around me like expect certain things from me and I want to have something to show for it and you know when people ask me what I do, I want to have a good answer that will like leave them satisfied rather than, you know, kind of confused. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think I started to feel this, like after I graduated from Princeton. And so I spent two years being, you know, a high school teacher, which I loved and is a very rewarding job, but like isn't exactly considered high status in today's world, perhaps, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Um, And, you know, I remember like telling people like it would be like spring of my senior year of, of college, and I had already lined up this teaching opportunity. And you know, people would say like, oh, so what are you going to be doing after graduation? And because I was a computer science major, like the expected answer was like, I'm going to go work for the startup or I'm going to go work for Google or I'm going to go to grad school. Um, and when I told them I was like not really pursuing computer science and I was just going to teach, people kind of would just be like, oh, oh, um, <laughs> oh, great. Good. Good for you. You know, and it's just like <laughs> that sort of thing. And, you know, I think I'm glad I got over the, the fear of that. I'm glad I just kind of said, who cares? Like, I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do. But I, I, I'd i be lying if I said, like, that didn't affect me, you know, in some yeah. way. So, yeah, that, so that's the first thing. Okay, I'll, I'll hold off on the second thing I want to discuss. But I, w- I wonder if you have any reactions to this idea of, like, people's expectations being the things that, that weigh on you. No, yeah, I definitely feel that. Like, um, I feel like this still affects me today. Like, I've been recently making some decisions regarding, like, like job, career. What do I want to do next, right? Um like we're kind of at the four year mark post-graduation. I feel like a lot of people are switching and like making their like second career move. And I feel like that's like a really um, interesting time to be in because, you know, when you're, you know, when we're in high school, like we all just want to get into like the same colleges, right? And when you're in college, you, if especially like, for example, if you're in computer science or like, and you have like the tracks, right? 
where like consulting, finance, computer science, like et cetera, uh, med school, et cetera. Um, everyone wants the same thing if you for within the track, right? Like you want to go to the same n number of companies or um, you know the same schools or anything like that. Yeah. But when you're four years out, like you know the next step isn't clear, and so it's really interesting to see like what are people doing at this juncture point, you know? But I do feel like like sometimes you know. Do you ever like you like talk to a person and you maybe maybe you felt this when you were teaching, but sometimes you like talk to a person and you fe- you can feel like, you know, they just aren't interested in you. Like they're maybe like in subtle ways, you get the impression like they look down on you. Right. Um, and that's like the worst feeling. And anytime like I get like a sense of that, like a little taste of it, I'm like, uh, man, like what did I do wrong? Like like you feel this pressure like. Like, uh, like if I was, if I had this job instead, they wouldn't talk to me this way, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of feeling. Yeah. And it's like so toxic and like insidious, I guess. Like it, like, why do I let this affect me? Like if they're the type of person who like, when I talk to friends about this, they'll say stuff like, you know, if they're the type of person who would like chart, like treat you differently because you don't have the same like level of achievement as them, do you really want to like be their friend? Right. And, like, on one hand, maybe no, but at the same time, like, um, we compare ourselves to people who we see as being in a similar cohort as us, right? Like, I remember, yeah, at one point when I was in high school, like, I was talking to, I went back home. And I'm from a really small town in Northern California where, like, the, the I guess, educational level isn't, um, like, people don't have as many opportunities, for example, that sort of thing. And, uh I went back to my hometown and I felt like pressure, like, oh, I should be like dating or something like that. This was when we were in like early high school. And um, I went back to our high school and I was talking to a friend about it. And I was like, man, like all these kids from my hometown are doing this thing. And like, I feel like I'm behind, but it was something that no one at our school was talking about. And she was like, oh, you shouldn't worry about what's happening there because that's not real life. Like your real life is here, you know, like these are the people you compare yourself to. Um, and it's interesting, like, you know, we see ourselves as like being in these different like life paths. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I'm like rambling a little bit, but yeah, all that to say, like, I totally get what you mean. Like the feeling of like, you tell people you're a teacher and they're like, oh, oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it's surprising. And you kind of don't, you're like, hmm, yeah, yeah, it is cool, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. No, and it's, it, I think that was like a reckoning that, well, I've maybe had like several reckonings about status anxiety, like throughout my life. I think one one reckoning was like transitioning from high school to, to college. And I think that was kind of a pretty brutal transition for me. And I know for a lot mm-hmm. of other people, I mean, I've talked about this with many people, but um, you go from being a child where, you know, I mean, I was fortunate in the sense that I had parents who were invested in my success as a student. I had teachers who were very invested. And I think, I, you know, one one of the pitfalls of having really good, caring teachers is that they, like, make you feel like the center of the universe. And that's a wonderful thing when you're a high school student yeah. to have teachers who, like, will literally show you so much love and affection and compassion and care that you really feel like you, everything you're doing is actually so important because they truly care. And that's great. But like the, the sort of the pitfall of that is that you get this inflated sense of like of your own importance um, as the student. And then you go to like college and like I remember just being it was completely brutal how little the professors cared about like a freshman mm-hmm. in college compared to like how much my high school teachers cared about me. You know, I mean, I had high school teachers who would like 
invite me over to their house and cook for me and who would like you know obviously of course knew my name but not only knew my name but you know knew about my family and knew about my sports and knew about this and that and just sort of they were like you know I mean because I, I part of it is we went to boarding school so they're very much involved in our lives in a way that's like very unique um but like you know you go to you go to college and like the professors do not care about, I mean, for, by and large, do not care about random, a random freshman sitting in, you know, calculus class or, you know, some, some lecture hall. Maybe, maybe people have different experiences and found, found people that, professors that, that did somehow care. But in general, you kind of have to seek that out. And I mean, that's not even a bad thing, right? It's just part of life. Like not everyone can care about everyone else all the time. They have their own yeah. things going on. Um, but I remember that being, that being pretty brutal, just like realizing, okay, like I just sort of have to you know, uh, accept this now that, that like, I'm not the center of, of the universe, uh, which of course, that's a very good lesson to learn at some point. Um, but, you know, I do remember in high school, like there, we had this like um, assembly, like right before people graduated, where some of the teachers were like giving students um, advice about, about transitioning to college. And they were like literally warning me about this exact thing. Like, you know, we had, I had a teacher in high school who like got up on the assembly stage, was like literally warning us, watch out. Like, you, I know you think you're like hot shit right now, but like, as soon as you go to college, like things may be different. And I was like, I don't know. I just kind of like, okay, okay. But I, I didn't really expect that to be like so true. So I think that was like one thing. Um, but of course, like, it's not like that was like the one episode that happened and I had to like accept it. And then I, I suddenly didn't suffer from status anxiety anymore. Like quite au contraire, um, um, you know, in, in college, then, you, then all these problems that we've talked about before where you, you encounter people who are like very, very advanced and successful in their fields like that that just kind of multiplies um and you start comparing yourself to like this like almost infinite pool of of, of you know exemplars of, of what you could be doing or what you should be doing um and so yeah i mean i i think you know I, it's something i still have to think about i think being a teacher for two years really did help because I, it was something that i felt was like intrinsically worthwhile i, I loved mm -hmm. the work I, I i i never for a moment regret spending two years teaching. I, I mean, what am I, I'm going to regret like the connections I made with the students and like the fact that I taught kids how to do math and computer science. Like, no, like I, I don't regret a minute of it and, it and it was great, but like, it's not this like societally high status thing. So, mm. so I kind of just kind of going back to the, the book, right? So in the second half of status anxiety, Alain de Botton talks about some of the remedies or some of the, the approaches to, to addressing status anxiety. And one of the things is like, coming up with like a philosophy and under understanding sort of what the source of your own worth is and coming up with a framework that that is separate from what people think about you. So like finding worth in yourself, finding value in a system in a framework that you create that is separate from what people think about you. Um, and I think like I was sort of forced to do that when I just kind of, I mean, I kind of in some ways felt like I was living in exile. Like, as I said, like no one, none of my friends visited me in Florida because it's in the middle of nowhere. Like compared to like, it's not New York city, it's not Boston where people are constantly passing through all the time. Uh, people would have to like really go out of their way to come see me. And so I didn't really see uh, people from from my old life. I kind of just had to like find this sort of modus vivendi of, of like how I can live in in that setting um, and, and find like a system of values that that like made life, you know, meaningful and, and purposeful to me. So I, I'm, I'm very glad that that did happen. But then, yeah, I kind of had to like reckon with it again when I when I left teaching. Right. Because I. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I had to, you know, I was thinking of applying to grad school and then, you know, I spent a year in England, but then I, when I was applying to PhDs, I like, wasn't sure if I would get in. And I like, honestly, if I hadn't gotten into my current PhD program, I don't know where I'd be right. I had no idea what, what I was going to, what my backup plan was. Um, I really had no clue. And I think I, I, there, there is a world in which I like really, really struggled with 
the whole status anxiety thing if I hadn't been able to, you know, get into like my current program where now at least I have some stability for like the next five years or whatever. So yeah, I think like, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear what you think about some of the remedies that, that um, Alain de Baton kind of proposes in the book about how, how to like start grappling with this idea of status anxiety and how to, um, I guess, alleviate some of the, the negative consequences of, of, yeah, like this whole phenomenon. Yeah. I think he gives like a couple different modes of like exit um, from the status anxiety. Um, so he talks about philosophy, um, where it's kind of like, yeah, like you question like everyone values this certain thing. But as we know, like this hasn't been valued, um, for example, since the beginning of humanity. Right. It's kind of a modern problem. Do we agree with what society puts forth as being valuable? Um, so that's one thing. The other one, which kind of speaks to me, is um, art. Which, like, when I first read the, like, the chapter on art as a potential remedy, I was kind of like, oh, okay, like, painting, that doesn't really solve my problems, right? Um, but when I thought about it more, like, did you ever see, there's, like, this kind of, like, um, not a meme, but kind of, like, an online trend where people talk about, like, romanticize your life. I haven't um, seen this, no. Oh, it's basically like, um, it's like people, like, I think a lot of people who are like into studying do this. So like for me, like, cause I like study Chinese and stuff or like, you know, in computer science, like you kind of have to study to keep up. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of studying involved in that I need to do. Right. And people will say like, romanticize your study life. So they'll say stuff like, you know, like it'll be sentences, it'll be like a paragraph and they'll say like, you look out the window in the morning and like uh, you wake up at 6 a.m., you drink your water and like, uh, you have, like I'm really not doing it justice, but it's basically like they write out like what your daily routine might look like, but in a really like, uh, they point out the little details that like make it like nice and aesthetic, right? I see. Um, and um, uh, like study, study blur was kind of a thing when we were in high school. Um, or like study spo where it's like pictures of like notebooks and like people writing in them or like well-designed like notebooks. Um, yeah, yeah. and, uh, yeah, people show that as kind of like inspiration for you to like learn to love your life, uh, when it might be hard. Cause you're like, there's the, like in like, uh, in Chinese, when I have like a dictionary app that shows you a bunch of like phrases, um, and sometimes it'll show you like really random ones. Like you look up like the word for study and it'll show you every phrase that has the word study in it. I remember one of them was like, uh, apparently there's this idea that like your your school life is called 10 years at a cold window. Um, and it's like, uh, it describes like how hard you need to study and how isolating it is. Cause like at the end of the day, like, you know, there's school, but at the end of the day, you kind of have to like spend a couple hours every day alone with a book, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I thought art as a potential remedy, like when you can learn to quote unquote romanticize your day-to-day -day life, like it becomes a lot more bearable. Um, and so that to me spoke as a potential remedy. Um, and the other one that he talks about is um, aligning yourself with people who do not value like material success. So I think he used the word like bohemian, like the bohemian approach. And uh, I felt like that, that one seems the hardest to me because like, you know, people value, I think the mainstream values say success, right? Especially like in our circles, right? 
But if you want to hang out with people who value other things, there's like infinite other things they could value. And it's not necessarily what you value, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really hard to find like alignment in that sense, like to find your right crew, you know? And who knows if they're even like in your city, if you're like, if you vibe in other ways, right? I think for us, like, you know, like uh, religion can sometimes be like a good potential exit from status anxiety. And I know that that can be like, kind of like, I don't want to call it a comfort because that seems like a cop out, but like it can be like, you know, a mediating force. Um, and like it does provide like, you know, kind of like shared values. Um, yeah. But that's also hard because it's also like, I don't. I have thought about being a nun, but like <laughs> that seems kind of extreme, you know, like I feel like you're either in or you're out. Right. And so it can be a bit hard in that sense. Um, it's really hard to find like that alignment of like finding a community that values non-traditional things. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Those are some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all, those are all great. I remember like, yeah, reading the book and being like, these are all very, very good ideas and also different from each other, which is nice. Cause I mean, it's not like one solution is going to fit everyone, but okay. I, I do have like some thoughts about the bohemian aspect specifically because mm. I, I get what he means, right? Like, like just kind of enter a community in which like, that's just sort of separate from this rat race, right? Where, where the things that they value find, find like, you know, find a place where it doesn't matter you know, what you have on your resume or how many zeros you have like in your bank account or, you know, whatever. So okay, that part of it, I totally agree with. I think like the idea of like bohemianism has kind of been like co-opted by kind of like the most elite and like status anxiety type people in some sense. Aww. Like, okay, like in that, okay, make, tell me if you can relate to this from your experiences. You know, okay, you, you go to some Ivy League university and you like walk around campus and you find like someone who like looks very bohemian. Okay. So that they, you know, the, the way they dress is very artsy, you know, they they like take film photos and they like do like, you know, they maybe they smoke some weed and like, you know, they, <laughs> and then you find out that they're like, dad is a billionaire or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, then, yeah. 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 <laughs> and then it's like, okay. And then like after college, they like go work at JP Morgan for like a few years or something. And then, yeah. uh, I, I mean, I don't know, like th this is just an archetype. And I don't really have anything like personally against the, I mean, okay, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. I'm just kind of thinking of a general vibe, you know, like Princeton has this sort of system of eating clubs, right. Which mm. like kind of by their own nature is like a somewhat elitist concept, right. Or maybe more than somewhat. It's like basically an expensive club that you pay a lot of money to be a part of where, you know, to just eat your meals there. Um, and, you know, there was like one of the clubs was like kind of styled itself as being like countercultural and like, you know, um, bohemian, um, I'm thinking of Terrace for anyone who's familiar with Princeton eating clubs. And it's like, okay, it's still like an eating club at Princeton University. Like compared, <laughs> compared to like other eating clubs, yes, maybe it is culture, cultural and bohemian. But it's like, it's not exactly like a place where you can go if you're like wanting to escape from status anxiety because you're still going to end yeah. up comparing yourself to people. You're still going to see lots of your cohort members go on to like these very traditionally successful, um, you know, echelons of power and, and status and success. So um, I, I do sort of have reservations about like the whole bohemian approach, like kind of granted that we, we like, maybe, maybe we just have to like define what we mean by bohemian. For me, like, I think what I sort of did find that a little bit at Princeton in like the outdoor action community, which is like sort of our, oh. our outdoorsy society. And actually like a lot of the people in that community were not part of the whole like traditional social scene and like a lot of them were just like independent like cooked their own food or a part of like weird co-ops and stuff uh I don't, I don't mean weird in like a bad way they just like you know kind of like would just cook food with friends and like okay 
that sounds like extremely normal by Princeton standards, cooking your own food is like extremely radically like countercultural. <laughs> um, you're not being served by, by waiters. <laughs> um, but um, yeah. And like sort of like their idea of like spending their school breaks would be like, okay, going like camping or something. Now, of course, people would also criticize camping and say camping is still like an inherently elitist activity because it requires a lot of money and free time to like go camping. So like, whatever we decide, like, there's going to be some critique that you can make that, like, okay, this isn't actually a solution because it's still part of this system. So, I mean, it's, it's complicated, but okay. Yeah. I do also want to talk about the art side of things because I think that's great. Um, I, my, my one thing there is I'm not so sure how art is, um, specifically a solution to the status anxiety problem. You know, I think, mm-hmm. I, I think like art and beauty in general is sort of this, like, it's this general purpose solution to a lot of the ills of life, right? Like, it's sort of this, like, it's, it's an answer to perhaps nihilism and despair, right? You know, you can look at the world and you can say like, that this is like the, the universe is indifferent to, to me and to, to my suffering and to the suffering of the world. And, and, you know, like why, why even care? You know, I mean, the, like, I feel like the philosophy of nihilism is just extremely tempting, especially like, in our modern world where you know it seems like so many things are going wrong and there's no purpose and there's no meaning um so i think like art and beauty is like a solution to that sort of like general uh, malaise that people may feel um but i I can see how it's also like specifically an answer to to status anxiety right because it gives you something to care about something to, to measure yourself by that's not about what other people think about you it's not about um, sort of like success in these in these worldly terms. I I think like ultimately status anxiety may be actually a product of the same like ennui and and nihilism, right? Because essentially, if you don't have some framework or some motivating drive that's like has its source and like whether it's beauty or truth or, or something like that, if 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 you, essentially your your outlook on life is inherently nihilistic, then the only thing you're going to end up measuring yourself by is sort of what people think about you, right? Because, I mean, that's just psychologically, mm-hmm. it's hard to shake yourself of that, even if you don't think there's any real meaning. Um, and so, you know, I think, like, the reason people pursue success and power and money is because it gives you options, at least. Even if you have nothing else, it gives you these options. It gives you, you can walk into a room and have people respect you. You can have money in your bank account and you can have the flexibility and the, you know, uh, just sort of this dynamic ability to, to go places, buy things, do stuff. Um, and so like, I think, you know, status, money, like these things are all very tied up with each other. And, and ultimately they're, they're kind of nihilistic in, in their approach to, to, to life. Um, whereas art and beauty are sort of like an answer to that, where you're saying like, Hey, there is some, there is some, something deeper here. You're trying to like uncover something beautiful in, in the world around you. I mean, I'm no artist, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't have any particular talent in this regard, but I think like also appreciating art and appreciating beauty can be, can be a form of this. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's like, um, I don't know. I feel the same as you, like, you know, like, I don't know if I could necessarily like create art, but like, I think the, the example he gives in the book is like, um, there was this painting that came out that was considered very radical for its time because traditionally paintings were like, uh, you were supposed to paint like famous battles or like leaders or like, you know, like, you know, Jesus or something. Right. Um, but this man, he painted like, a nurse peeling a hard-boiled egg for someone who is sick, right? And, like, it's a very, like, you know, mundane, I guess, kind of scene, right? Um, But by painting it, you're giving it a sense of nobility. Like, this is worthy of being shown and viewed, right? Um, And I think that that is... um, 
I, I don't know. I, I really like that example of like seeing that kind of turn in the way people view like um, what we should value in society um, and like what's worthy of being shown. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Like, I think that, you know, there's these like YouTube videos that I really like. Um, it's like this whole genre of YouTube where like people don't show their face, but they show them like doing daily activities like cooking or like cleaning their apartment. And it's like filmed with like this really high quality camera. These get like millions of views. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, it just shows them like using like even just like stuff like opening a jar. It looks so aesthetic. Like it's kind of like ASMR, right? Yeah. And now like anytime like I like when I like brush my teeth, right? I feel like I really pay attention to like how like the tube of toothpaste feels when I twist the cap, right? And like, you know, hold the brush, right? Um, and it makes you kind of like value these more mundane parts of like or quote unquote ordinary life. Um, that, I don't know, it, it's, it feels nice, right? Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think there is something very special and, and deep about this sort of like finding the beauty in the, in the everyday and the mundane. Uh, because I think like if like even even this idea of art and beauty can actually succumb to a, it's like its own type of pitfalls, its own type of malaise. If you if you don't sort of see beauty in the everyday. Right. If, you, if you're pursuing yeah. beauty, it can actually become its own form of status anxiety. Right. Like, you know, just yeah. an example of this is like there was this interesting article in The Economist about sort of like how um, like if you're really rich and successful, then like sort of like as a man, for example, like then finding like beautiful models to always be on your arm is like sort of this, this status anxiety where like, you know, they, people pay thousands of dollars for like, you know, special VIP tables at clubs just to like be, you know, around very attractive models, you know, and, and there's this whole like economy of like private clubs in New York and London and places like that, where it's like people are just basically using money to like buy status in the form of like beautiful people. And I mean, and in some sense, that's like an extremely shallow form of beauty. And also you're using beauty not for the, the appreciation of just the beauty that is inherently in an object. But it's, again, this sort of self-referential thing where it's about how people see you. It's about, you know, oh, someone sees me with this beautiful person and they're going to think more highly of me as a result. So it's sort of twisting the idea of, of what you were saying, right? Which is like, okay, even something like brushing your teeth, like find the beauty in that. Um, and, you know, it makes me think of like certain like Japanese kind of like, traditional um, philosophy and like art, for example, there's this idea of mono no aware. Mono no aware is like about sort of this, this fleeting or like mundane beauty, which is just like in everyday things. Um, mm. And like, whether it's just like, I mean, I, that, that idea is kind of in a lot of um, Japanese arts. So things like ikebana, like the flower arrangement, right? Where it's not about like mm. finding the most, you know, big blossoms and the most symmetrical bouquets and the bright, brightest colors. It can be something extremely asymmetrical and just like, you know, a few, um, like relatively sparse, uh, you know, sprigs of flowers that like, you know, to like sort of Western sensibilities may not seem particularly beautiful, but it's, it's about the, the way you, the way you put care into like arranging it. Um, you know, even things like, I remember I spent, um, uh, one, uh, uh like just one night at the Zen Buddhist monastery in Japan, um, Eheji, it's like the, the sort of the, the main temple of, of Zen Buddhism in Japan. And just like the amount of effort that the Buddhist monks there put into just cleaning the place, like just, just cleaning, like every day they would spend hours like cleaning every single surface, um, with like mm -hmm. rags, like not, not with a vacuum cleaner, like with, mm -hmm. with hand, like with their hands and with rags, like wiping every floorboard, every, you know, railing, everything, uh, to keep the place tidy. 
um, just out of care for the environment in which they're, you know, meditating and praying and, and doing their spiritual practices. Um, you know, and I mean, that, that, like, I guess it also ties into like your, your sort of comments about like religion as a solution to things. I mean, and these things are, I think all interrelated. They're all sort of getting at different facets of the same thing. Right. I think it was like mother Teresa or something who said like, I, I, I might be totally wrong. Maybe it's a different person. I don't know, but it said something like, you know, it's not about like doing, um, doing great things. It's about doing like small things with great love or something. So, I mean, the, the, oh, the, the, yeah. there's all these things, but like, it doesn't have to be great or grand. Um, it's about, you know, the amount of care and love that you put into it. I mean, this also ties into like mindfulness and, you know, just being appreciative for what you have and for just like little moments, um, sort of letting go of these sort of pathological desires for, for more status or addictions or these different things and just sort of being like content with like what you have. Um, I think I'm still trying to like definitely figure out like how to incorporate this into my life. I feel like I need it. And I feel like I'm not super good at like incorporating these things, but it sounds like you, you've got, um, at least like, I mean, I hadn't heard of these like YouTube channels of people doing things in like this mindful way, which sounds very cool. So, uh, yeah, no, no, no. These are, these are all super great, at least ideas and suggestions. Yeah. I even like the one you brought up, like I've heard of like Mono no Aware and like something that I always like about it when I like read it on the page is like, even like Aware, like it looks like aware. aware right? And yeah, I feel yeah. like, like, you know, it stems like, it's kind of the same, like similar, right? Like it, you want this awareness of like the fleeting nature of um, these kind of everyday moments. Um, yeah, like, oh no. There was even like an Instagram uh, caption on like, uh, there is this woman and uh, she visited her husband's country with her family and her child. And she made a statement where she was like, this has been the best week of, her life or something like that and she was like I want it to last forever but I know that life doesn't work that way and it just gave this nobility to like something that you know all the pictures she posted were of her just like going on a walk right but I think especially like these like mundane moments I think of like housewives a lot and that's what a lot of these youtubers are that I mentioned like they're just like housewives like showing like their daily life like you know like changing diapers like feeding the dog and like it just gives like yeah kind of an escape from like the idea that it's like not a good way, like a boring life or like mundane, right? Um, and that's liberating, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like, I mean, I know Alain de Botton brought up like the idea of like medieval peasants a lot. And, you know, there's certain issues with like, we don't want to romanticize the past, but like one of the things like we don't really have too much anymore is sort of like crafts people, you know, people who just like get mm. really good at one thing. You know, yeah. whether it's like a stonemason or like a carpenter, or like just sort of these, like these, all these jobs that like, we don't really think of that anymore. Right. Where, where, you know, yeah. like you just sort of can get lost in this, like, you know, people these days talk about like, okay, how do you get it back into deep work? Because we're always getting distracted by our emails and our Slack notifications. Like just try to find like a few hours of deep work every day. And it's like deep work is like all what people used to do every day. It's like, if, whether you're a yeah. farmer or a carpenter or whatever, it's like, it was always sort of this like very deep work where you're just sort of like, it's extremely like in in the zone of, of what you're doing and you get very good at it and now it's like a lot of even like the sort of cognitively demanding work it's like constantly being bombarded with these like distractions and then like a lot of the the sort of manual laborers or like mundane work is actually much less interesting than the kind of work that that people might have had in the past right where if it's like if you're like a warehouse worker or something or like i don't know like uh you know you're just you're, you're checking things on a conveyor belt that for like defects like that's like actually a lot less objectively like fulfilling and it's harder to find that like um, 
fleeting beauty in compared to something like, you know, um, I don't know, carpentry or like farming, you know, I mean, again, not to romanticize those jobs, which are very hard. And like, you know, obviously I'm not saying everyone should just be a farmer or a carpenter, but we have, I guess, maybe lost something with the decline in like trades and, and skills and like skilled um, labors and, and things like that. Yeah. And I think that what you brought up also kind of speaks to this idea where I think oftentimes, like, especially in the contemporary era, I think we like to deny the fact that we have physical bodies, you know, that like are biological and like are wired certain ways. Like I, um, I think when we were doing the status anxiety book club, it was, uh, I was taking like a medical leave from work because of like, (laughs) quote unquote, because, uh, incidentally anxiety. Right. Um, and you know, I had friends who were giving me suggestions like, Oh, what should I do with my time? Right. I have so much free time now. Um, and they're saying like, you like to write, why don't you write? And I realized like, you know, I would try to do writing and like to a certain extent, like journaling is good, but I felt like actually writing didn't seem like a good way to like escape the cycle of anxiety. Right. Because I think anxiety can often be rooted in like thoughts, right. And like thoughts we verbalize, right. In words. So writing can sometimes like it, uh, just keeps you in that headspace. Whereas if you do something like art or like, um, like physical labor, like cooking or like, um, carving, for example, like we are like, physical creatures and like doing repetitive physical processes does like create a kind of headspace in us that it can be very meditative and calming. Um, and so I found art like real, like drawing, for example, was a much better like outlet for like, um, anxiety, I guess, than, um, you know, writing things down or trying to like think your way out of a problem. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, like, I think that these kind of more physical traits, like it's interesting that all the traits that you mentioned are like ones where, you know, we often in the modern era, we like seek out like a, what's it called? Like a cubicle job where you're sitting at a desk or a white collar job. Right. Um, but there is like a certain amount of, um, like real physical good that comes from having a manual job. Um, where you can, you know, engage in that kind of meditative physical process. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think like, yeah, there are definitely some examples I, I know of. I mean, you know, there's this like famous documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, where it's like the sushi mm. chef. And it's like, he's all, it's all about the love and attention he puts into just like the, the manual labor aspects of like being a sushi chef, right? So that's like one example. I would say, I guess like now that you bring up that, the point about like those ASMR YouTube channels, I do remember this like one channel called Baumgartner Restoration. It's like, he's, like, he's this like art restorer, so all oh. he does is like he takes these extremely dirty old paintings and he like cleans them and he just like he has these like 45 minute long videos of just him cleaning the grime off of a painting and like restoring it to its like original um, state or as, as sort of as close as, as one can get. And, you know, I will I find myself just like sitting there watching 45 minutes of a guy cleaning a painting because it's like it's so yeah. therapeutic of just like, OK he's clearly extremely engaged in this work. He's not like stopping every three minutes to check his phone. He's like very involved. And that sort of like rubs off on you and you start to like feel like, okay, this, I, I you know, I kind of, you, you feel this like longing for, for that level of, of focus and attention. And then of course, like combined with the fact that what it's doing is it's, it's, I mean, it's very metaphorical in some sense, but it's taking this like sort of dirty, obscured, painting and like uncovering the hidden beauty underneath which I I think is like a very Mm. nice analogy for some of the things we've been talking about of like identifying that hidden beauty that 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 is sort of all around us all the time but that we don't necessarily appreciate um or see yeah it kind of makes me also think of there's this famous quote by Dostoevsky 
um, krasatas pasiot mir, beauty saves the world, saves the world, or beauty will save the world, um, and yeah, there's, it's, it's just sort of like, you know, I, I mean, going back to our discussion about beauty, right, like, what exactly does it mean that beauty will save the world? It's not that, like, beautiful things or beautiful people will save the world, but it's about that attention to beauty mm -hmm. and finding things beautiful and, like, putting in the effort of, like, telling these these stories and, 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 and sharing that that can, like, restore, I guess, your, your faith, kind of be this, like, antidote to, to the nihilism and purposelessness that, that, like, plagues people. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, one thing I did want to ask you before uh, our time is up, although we are yeah. already at, like, an hour. So do you still have, like, you still have time? Or, I don't know. Yeah, you're... I still have time. Okay, yeah, cool. I'm, I'm here all day. <laughs> um, yeah, um, so, you know, we discussed briefly, like, kind of our experiences in boarding school and i think like that does play into this aspect of status anxiety i think it kind of explains mm -hmm. why we know a lot of people who suffer from status anxiety and why ourselves we may have suffered at various points you mentioned at one point when we talked about this book previously that there's this like phenomenon of like boarding school syndrome um yeah <laughs> yeah i found that like very interesting because i remember i never heard of this and then you read me like this list of supposed symptoms of of boarding school syndrome and i think it's important to realize that like this is not exclusive to boarding school. It's just something that like happens yeah. to be shared by a lot of kids who go to boarding school. Um, but it's not like you can only get, I mean, I think it's like, it's, it's more, I think accurately described as this like form of status anxiety combined with like certain, I guess, developmental peculiarities that are shared by people who like, you know, left home and at a pretty young age. So, I mean, to what degree do you think there's like, like, yeah, overlap between, between these concepts? Do you think they're like kind of part of the same thing? Or do, do you think they're like certain aspects of the boarding school experience that are like, have sort of separate, I mean, issues, uh, like separate from status anxiety that, that you've like been able to reflect on, I guess, in the, in the years since you graduated from high school? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, Boarding school syndrome, it's not like in the DSM or anything, but it's just like, you know, people have written articles about it and um, it, yeah, like you read the list of symptoms and you're like, oh, wow, yeah, that's very familiar, right? Um, so I guess it's just like observing trends more than anything. Um, but I remember like one of the like things that people had written about boarding school syndrome was this idea of um, you, like most kids, like when they're raised by their parents, right? Um, there is a constant like push and pull between like the parents will set a rule, the kid will need flexibility with that rule. And so the parent will like adjust, like, you know, you're, they're, they're your child. So like, you know, you make accommodations for them. It's much more like a natural flow. But when you're in boarding school, it's like, you know, one teacher for however many number of students and like the rules have to be pretty uniformly enforced. So like, for example, we had bedtime. We had to be in bed at 11 and like you could request like twice like a semester. You could request like a late night, which meant you got to stay up until 12. Right. And different dorms like, you know, enforce that to varying degrees of like strictness. But um, that was technically the rule. And there were times when like we at least in my dorm, they would actually enforce it. That's so funny because so, they never enforced in my dorm. They literally never enforced that bedtime rule in my dorm. But anyway, it's but I, I think your point stands. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was when we got, like, a new dorm head, and she was, like, uh, I think she was, like, oh, I need to, like, lay down the law here <laughs> um, or, like, develop a reputation for being an enforcer. But, you know, they stopped eventually. But, um, but yeah, like, so one of the things they talk about is, like, you grow up, like, that affects a person when you grow up in a system where there's less, like, uh, flexibility, right? Like, you have to conform to a system, and you have to work within it. And so I think, like, 
maybe there's an aspect of like quote unquote boarding school syndrome where kids grow up to be people who feel like they need to work in system like like work within a pre prescribed system as opposed to like the flexibility of like carving their own path mm -hmm. um that to me seemed like kind of interesting other thing that i thought was interesting was for our school in particular did you ever read that book where um this guy like an anthropologist or a sociologist i don't really know um he came to our school for two years and lived there and then he wrote a book that was literally like an anthropological study of the students in the school and literally he he was so specific um i read the book and or like i skimmed it right um and he had like diagrams like if you sit at this table in this dining hall then you, that means you must sit in this area of the assembly hall and your friends are in these clubs and your gpa is around this range and you're going to go to this type of college and it was 100 percent accurate like literally like like I did sit at that table and I did sit in this place in the assembly hall and like this was my GPA and I did go to this college, right? Yeah. Um, it was very strange and it was written years before we got there. I think it came out in maybe like 2006 or something. Um, and so the fact that like that trend still held, like it really, to me, go, like it showed like, you know, the longevity of the institution and how like, you know, it also kind of made me think of like, you know, um, this idea like we do not have as much autonomy as we think we do in our society um and i don't know it really it really just gave this feeling of like um wow like this really was predictable and you really are a product of your environment um and so boarding school like it seems like something that wouldn't matter like who cares if you went to boarding school right and to a certain extent that's true right like you're gonna be your own person but to another extent like the things that happen to us matter you know and like that's a pretty big difference growing to boarding school versus growing up like in a home and going to school during the day. Like, yeah, you're so strongly affected by your peers. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. I remember you bringing this. I never read that book, but it's, it's totally believable to me that, that the, like these archetypes would like even 10, 15 years later, whatever would still like uh, apply to people. And I mean, I mean, to some degree that's present, I think in like all environments, you know, whether you know, it could be in a company, it could be in a high, like just a regular day high school. Um, but yeah, I think there is something very, very specific about like being constantly surrounded by, um, you know, your, your peers, you, you never really get a break from it. You know, you, you have classes and then you go to the dining hall together and then you go to clubs together and you go to sports together and you go to the dorm together and the weekends together and like everything, um, that just sort of makes, makes it all like just so like, it's this microcosm of, of the real world there's no real break from, um, and yeah, I think, I think like, you know, it, it really pushes back against this idea that like you can ever really be a total, like an island, right? I mean, I, mm -hmm. perhaps like people might imagine that one solution to the status anxiety is to just like, you know, not care and just, just you know, okay, only derive all your worth from, from yourself. And, you know, that we did, I kind of mentioned some of like the philosophies of how philosophy can, can help you reevaluate, right? And, you know, maybe, maybe someone might say that's like part of the stoicism, like stoic philosophy is to just like, um, not really let the contingencies of this world affect you and just like find stability and, and just like your own, your own like self-worth or, or whatever it may be, find something stable. But like we are these products of, of we're social beings, right? Humans have evolved yeah. to be social. I mean, there's so many aspects of human psychology that are, that are specifically evolved, like you know, adaptive to, to be in these, these social environments to care about what people think about us. And so like, it's this, it's this very like, delicate balance between um you know you it's good to care what people it's good it's good to to be liked it's good to to 
you know, want people to think you're a good person. But at the same time, like, that shouldn't be how you measure yourself, or that shouldn't be the only way you measure yourself. And you do need some sort of framework to see it in. So, I mean, I, I feel very conflicted. There's no, like, one right answer. Like, okay, reject this, and just like, oh, it's easy. All you have to do is stop caring. Like, no, mm-hmm. as you said, like, we are we are these products of these environments. Um, and, yeah, it's it's just... It's, it's not easy. I mean, I don't know. I, I think some of the things that I remember from that list were, were quite interesting. I mean, talking about, um, I mean, all, all these status anxiety related symptoms, right? Um, yeah. Caring about what people think about you and, and needing success. But also some of the some of the factors were like lacking the capacity for emotional intimacy or like, um, you know, like <laughs> being unable to connect to people, which that's kind of interesting, given that in boarding school, you spend so much time like with friends and you're like, in some ways, the people I know from boarding school were like very mature for their ages. And like when they were 15, we're talking like, you know, um, college students because they're just, you know, they're, they're sort of forced to grow up faster. But it's kind of interesting that they end up then in some of these cases uh, feeling like they struggle with intimacy. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about like what is going on there and like, I don't know, what aspect of the experience kind of leads to these like longer term problems with, with closeness and intimacy. Yeah. I mean, something that comes to mind is I remember we were ranting about this back in high school. Like I remember we got lunch one time and uh, we were talking about like summer programs, like summer camps and stuff. And you were up, like, we were both annoyed because uh, you would ask someone what they did over the summer and people would be like weirdly cagey about it. And it, the reason why is because they don't want to give you ideas. Like if they did like an elite internship or like an elite summer camp, they don't want you to know that it exists because then you'll do it and then you'll it'll go on your college application and then you'll be like competition when we're all applying to college. That was super toxic, right? Like that's like the kind of thing like, uh, like people talk about like at certain colleges, like people rip pages out of textbooks at the library before an exam that sort of thing like that's kind of on that level of scale Mm -hmm. but people genuinely did this like you would ask people like uh what they did over the summer and they would legit like like uh oh you know just seeing family yeah i didn't really do much and then you would look at their linkedin and it was like they actually did this like really elite internship and that was like always kind of weird um and so i think there was like a certain like yeah, I don't think this is the reason for the lack, like struggling with intimacy, but like, you know, you kind of had to be on your guard when you were in school, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone could be competent. Yeah, that's definitely, I think, a really interesting component of it, right? People do like kind of compare themselves based on resumes or GPAs or whatever, um, especially, I think, a, a concern when yeah people are like applying to some of the same universities and stuff. Um, yeah, I also wonder if like, I don't know, one thing I've been thinking about a lot is maybe a bit, tangential a bit different is like Mm. kind of the role of boarding school and specifically boarding schools where people come from all over the country and actually all over the world right and so it's not Mm. you're not like necessarily rooted in some like local community it's very much this like cosmopolitan bubble um and this was like most striking to me when i taught just at like sort of a a normal high school uh, in florida where it's it's not like people are coming from all over the world to study i mean people are just all from the same city and are all part of like local communities it's like people go to the same like club, like after school club, people go to the same set of churches with their families and see each other like on the weekends. People like, I mean, the, the it's sort of like, you know, um, you go to a restaurant and it's like owned by one of your students' parents. Or you go to like a this random shop and it's like, yeah, again, it's like you recognize that the last name is like a kid that you teach. And it's like, okay, it's like all sort of this like local community versus like boarding school is very much the opposite of that where it's like, you know, okay, yes, the people are in this small town altogether, but like on breaks, they're going back to 
New York and Hong Kong and London, you know? And it's like, I mean, I think it sort of prepares you for this extremely cosmopolitan lifestyle, which can serve you very well in the sort of like status anxiety world. You know, if you were going to be a consultant at McKinsey, it's great to have like rub shoulders with like people from all over the world. You had like during high school and like to have that be normal. But this like gets into like a bigger tension with this concept that's been like referred to before as like the somebody's versus anybody's. Where, like, a somebody is someone who's, like, from a particular place and has this, like, feeling of, like, local community, this, like, social fabric, social capital, um, and, like, I guess another word for this is, like, solidarity, right? They have this sense of, like, okay, I belong to a particular place, like, belonging. Root- rootedness, perhaps, is maybe the best way to put it. And then the anybody's typically more well-educated, wealthier, have, like, higher status jobs, and feel, like, equally at home in London or New York or hong kong or tokyo or wherever you know and it's like the, the place to them like the normal is like you know a conference center or a hotel or an airport not like the local streets of a local town you know and um i, I do feel like boarding school very much prepares you for that that kind of lifestyle where you're not rooted anywhere you can you'd happily move anywhere for for to advance your career right i remember telling people um at my when i was teaching that i was leaving to go to grad school in england and like the reaction was just like why like why would you leave why would you uproot yourself and like go to england that's so far uh whereas like i don't know like when i talk to people from our high school or from college like i, I didn't have to explain anything it's like oh okay yeah, yeah. you're going to grad school in, in cambridge like okay that's like a kind of you know makes sense to do that at your stage in life i guess like it's such a different reaction um but i, I do think that like maybe contributes to this sort of lack of um and like rootedness lack of Perhaps intimacy is like one word for it because it's hard for me to imagine just like settling down, I guess. It's hard to imagine me like committing to like being in one place um, for a time. And I think that also translates to like relationships, right? It's hard to imagine yeah. yourself just like, I don't know, settling down, having a family like right here, right now, right? Like, whereas the people that I knew when I was teaching, it's like, yeah, why not? Like, I met someone, like, we dated and now I'm just going to get married and have a kid. Like, it wasn't like super, it wasn't this like anxiety inducing thing where like I feel like people, in in um like sort of the boarding school setting and that's i mean not just boarding schools but sort of that that milieu just sort of like um maybe struggle with like the connecting or or like committing in, in some sense i don't know i don't know if that like resonates at all with you no for sure for sure like it's definitely like um yeah like kind of two aspects like one i think it's like uh that idea in psychology where uh you give people like three jam options and then they choose one and they're very happy with their decision. But if you give them 20 jam options and they can choose one, they're never that happy, you know, because they're like, oh, I had so many options. Was I really, did I really get it right? Um, And so in the same way, like boarding school exposes you to so many different things you could do in life and like people from so many different areas where, um, you know, it's hard to choose just one. Um, And in the same way, like it kind of reminds me like, yeah, like when you go to boarding school, like, whatever life you had before, like you go to boarding school at like 14, right? And then you spend four years there, four years at college, you move to your post-college city, which is probably going to be different from the place you grew up. Um, And you get used to kind of viewing your life in these segments and you have friends from different segments or time periods in your life. And so they know you for a period, but they, you know, don't know you as deeply. And, you know, we have friends, like, you know, we're friends with people from high school and you stay in touch, um, but it's kind of... um, at best is like a long distance friendship most likely. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of reminds me, like I was talking to someone a while back and I asked them like, uh, like, what do you think is like 
the mo the person who knows you best like what do you think is like the best that anyone knows you and they're like I don't know maybe 60 percent like no one really knows you like no one can know you 100 percent but you you know like if you like grow up really with someone and then maybe you get married or something like you could probably get to like 80 plus right yeah. or someone gets you um but this person like they were kind of like a serial monogamist um and like they were constantly like going from a late or not constantly but like they went from relationship to relationship and so because of that like you know people only knew them as well as they could in that period of life but there wasn't a longevity between those periods um and so maybe that contributed to like you know practice makes perfect if you don't have experience forming these like super intimate relationships you maybe could have difficulty forming them in the future just because you're inexperienced at it um just because like uh you're only knowing people or being really close with them for a short time and then that time ends yeah that makes perfect sense i i find that yeah very very relatable actually i mean i think like you know I just haven't really been in the same place for, for, for a long time. Right. Like, I mean, even when people ask me the question, like, where are you from? It like causes mm. a little bit of anxiety because I have no idea how to answer that question. Like I was born in one place, grew up in a different place, went to high school in a different place, went to college in a different place. My parents now live in a totally different place to that. And like, I mean, so all, like all the ways you might answer that question, like where you were born, where you grew up, where you went to high school, where your parents live, like my answers to all of those questions are different. Um, mm. And so I don't feel like I have, um, yeah, this sort of like, I'm like very not rooted in, in some sense. Um, and in terms of, yeah, like friendships as well. Like, as I said, like we've known each other for 12 years, but I don't have too many other friends that like I've actually stayed in touch with from high school. I mean, maybe we'll like chat once in a while, but um, yeah, it's like, it's actually pretty, pretty unusual to like actually have that, especially as you said, like being geographically dispersed and, you know, not having opportunities to like actually see people in person and then yeah like i like what you said about like sort of it trains you or it sort of uh, gets you accustomed to that right so you sort of you learn to live i mean i mean I'm, I'm an adult now like i'm pretty much fully formed in some sense like what i'm used to is having these like friendships of a certain depth where you know we get to know each other and we help each other out and then you know we do what friends do you know we keep each other company um but like i've kind of learned to be at peace with not having someone who like is like a childhood best friend who knows like every little quirk about me. I'm just like, I've sort of accepted that that's not part of my life. And and so, um, yeah, I don't know. Like it, 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 it makes sense to me that, that people who have a similar um, life experience trajectory to me would, would also maybe perhaps suffer from some of the same, like, I don't know, negative aspects as well. Um, yeah. It's, 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 it's always interesting to, to sort of, see other people and i mean obviously it's you know there's no it's not like destiny like people may turn out differently but um yeah. like you know life can be lived forward but can only be understood backwards um mm -hmm. yeah yeah no i totally get what you mean even like you know what you said about like the where are you from and like it's really stressful because like you don't want to give too long-winded of an answer and like you don't want to seem like you know like a special princess or anything like that like you know like has to list more than one place for hometown, right? Yeah. Like, it just gets too complicated. You feel like you're talking for too long. Um, yeah, yeah. You don't want to, like, yeah, draw a huge amount of attention to yourself, but it's, like, you also have to be, like, kind of honest. So, yeah, I don't know. That's why yeah. I, I think that's, that's part of why I struggle. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. Um, yeah. So, clearly, these are things that we still are grappling with and uh, mm -hmm. haven't necessarily completely solved but i it is great to be able to discuss it with someone who i feel like just relates on, on a certain level and i also want to just make sure we like 
I don't know, like sometimes having these conversations can be tough, right? Because you talk about things mm-hmm. like status anxiety, you talk about things like boarding school and people are like, oh, like boo-hoo, like first world yeah. problems. <laughs> or like, wow, you're such an elitist. Or like, you went to boarding school. Wow, you're rich. I mean, we've talked about this before, right? Where it's like people just yeah. make all these assumptions about you. Sometimes those assumptions are accurate. Like, okay, like, yes, we did. We literally went to high school with billionaires, kids. And like, yes, okay. Like I, in the scheme of things, I had a very privileged upbringing. Um, but like, that doesn't give people the right to make assumptions about it. And, and of course, like, it's not true for everyone. I mean, there, there were plenty yeah. of people at our school who were on full financial aid, whose families were saving money because they were, their kids were going free room and board and tuition at, at our school. So, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's unwarranted to make, make assumptions. And I don't know, I feel like sometimes it can be this like conversation ending cliche. Like you mentioned boarding school and people are just like, oh, okay, I know everything I need to know about you. You're just like a rich snob. Um, and I think there are important conversations to be had. Um, not saying like you know everyone should care about it i mean i understand if it's just not super interesting to some people yeah but like i I think there should be a space and and i'm glad i've been able to like at least have this like i just frank and non-judgmental uh conversation with you and it's always refreshing to be able to just like kind of like get some of those things off my chest and you know like i mean i try not to be an elitist but it's like sometimes you just have to like talk about the experiences that you've had so yeah 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 yeah. for sure yeah no it's really yeah like you're not even supposed to talk about status. He talks about this in the book. Like, you know, we all know, we're all aware of it. And like, we all kind of, you know, it's very normal. We're human to care about it. Like, you know, we have, we're very used to like, we grew, or humans developed in like these hierarchical social structures, like social animals, et cetera, et cetera. And so like status is like a part of how we engage with the world. But in because we live in this like meritocratic society and, you know, you know, we're all supposed to be equal. And to a certain extent, I think like we do, you know, live up to that. Like, you know, like uh, when you go to the store and you talk to the cashier, like I think like at least for me, like, you know, I can think about it through a couple of different lenses. Like, you know, like we are both human and like of equal value and worth. Right. Um, but we also like maybe we have certain things in common and we have certain things not in common. Right. Um, and so I think like, yeah, you just kind of like, uh, like you kind of like, it's hard to talk about status in like a lot of situations. Cause like, if you aren't on in like a similar life setting or didn't have similar privileges growing up, like, uh, it feels a little bit uncouth. Right. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's really well put. Um, yeah. So, well, Lily, it's been, yeah, as I said, a very, um, great and, I don't know, refreshing conversation to discuss this with you. The time really flew by. I did not, yeah. it did not feel like an hour and 20 something minutes, but it has been. Um, <laughs> so I do want to be respectful of your time, but no, this was, this was absolutely great. Um, I, I love ca- chatting with you. It was great to have you on the podcast. Uh, I'm glad we finally could make it happen despite like yeah. the differences in time zone and location. And yeah, I just, I can't thank you enough. It's, it's been really nice. No, this has been great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it's so fun to participate. I'm excited to see it come out. Yeah, no, waiting with bated breath. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Lily.